Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello. Uh, <coughs> oh, froggy. Uh, thank you for joining me this Tuesday, February 27th. Uh, just a little programming note. I will not be here tomorrow. Um, my poor son is going to have to have a second surgery on his arm that he broke badly over the summer, and it is taking place tomorrow. I will be back here on Thursday. Also, <clears throat> part of the reason I have this frog, is this happening to you? Now that we're having this warm-up, this summertime 60s and 70s weather, I'm, I'm going through allergy season. Yeah, allergy season. I am sneezing. I am taking all of my meds. Um, and I started to think yesterday, I was like, oh, my God, am I, am I coming down with something? And I was like, no. You know, uh, the high temperatures, I guess, have all those molds and pollens floating around that have been so beautifully released by the grasses and the trees. <sighs> Well, don't worry. Winter's coming back. It'll be here by tomorrow morning. We are, according to Block Club Chicago, um, we're going to experience four seasons in the next 24 hours. Yet today, in some places, it is supposed to get into the high 70s. High 70s. It is February. A lot of sun. And then um, early this evening, we're going to see thunderstorms in some places uh, they're predicting they could be really severe, maybe even a tornado or two. Then in the middle of the night, we're going to have a cold front move in. And uh, the actual temperature in a, in a very short period of time is expected to drop 20 to 30 degrees. Uh, some are saying it could drop 20 to 30 degrees in one hour. We'll see how that plays out. And tomorrow it's going to be winter again. <clears throat> so... There's going to be snow. There's going to be hail. Be careful if you have to drive because there's probably going to be a lot of ice because of the rain. And then and then over the weekend, I'm I'm told from what I read that we're going to be back in the 60s. Go figure. Springtime in Chicago. Um, There you have it. A lot of big things happening on Capitol Hill today. Um. Senator Chuck Schumer and Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth had a big press conference. As you know, the state of Alabama basically uh, took an action that is going to ban in vitro fertilization in that state. They said that all those little clumps of cells are kids. Yep. Little frozen kid balls, I guess, is what they are. Little frozen, tiny, tiny, itty bitty. You know, just can't even hardly see them except for the microscope kid balls. <clears throat> and the three major medical centers have said that they are either ending or pausing in vitro fertilization. For those of you, who, I've never had to undergo it, but I have friends that have had to undergo it. This isn't it isn't just like getting a surgery where you decide to do it. You go in, you get it, you go, you come home. This takes months Months and months, there are shots, you know, blood levels have to get to a certain point, you know, um, because even when embryos are fertilized, they don't always attach when they're re-implanted. You have to get all of these extra 
cells and um, you can only implant so many at a time because, you know, you don't want to take the chance that somebody's going to be pregnant with five babies. But on the other hand, you know, it usually takes six cycles, so they might not get pregnant with anything. It is a months and in, with some people, sometimes years long process. Uh, Tammy Duckworth was um, only able to conceive because of in vitro fertilization. So this hits really, really hard for her. And, you know, I had that bite that I'm not going to play again. Tommy Tuberville last week, who clearly didn't know what IVF was. He is the senator from Alabama. And he was like, hey, anything that makes for more babies is going to be good. Well, they said, no, actually, this will make for fewer babies. Oh, well, you know, uh, it's uh Uh, It's an issue I'm going to have to study. In other words, nobody told me about it. I don't know anything about it. I don't know what IVF means. So um, this is not the first time Senator Duckworth has introduced a bill to try to protect in vitro fertilization. But right now, at least in the Senate, remember I told you how the um, Senate committee that advises senators who are running for re-election or candidates who are hoping to flip a seat for the Republican Party. And a memo went out and said, do not say you're against IVF. That is a losing proposition. The vast majority of Republicans, as well as Democrats, as well as independents, think IVF is a good thing. So you can't say you're against IVF. In fact, say the opposite. Say that you're for in vitro fertilization. Well, Looks like Tammy Duckworth is going to hold their feet to the fire. This is what she had to say, a little bit of what she had to say this morning. You know, I was stationed in Alabama for a bit when I was in the Army. In fact, it's the home of Fort Novacell, the home of Army Aviation. I didn't know it at the time, but my infertility would become one of the most heartbreaking struggles of my life. My miscarriage more painful than any wound I ever earned on the battlefield. So it's a little personal to me when a majority male court suggests that people like me who are not able to have kids without the help of modern medicine should be in jail cells and not taking care of their babies in nurseries. I know I'm not alone when I struggle to understand how politicians who support this kind of policy can possibly call themselves pro-life. After Roe v. Wade was overturned, actually even before then, when Donald Trump promised to only appoint justices who would overturn it, I warned that red states would come for IVF. And now they have. But they aren't just going to stop in Alabama. Mark my words, if we don't act now, it will only get worse. That's why tomorrow I'm headed to the Senate floor to call on my colleagues to pass, via unanimous consent, my Access to Family Building Act which would ensure that every American's right to become a parent via treatments like IVF is fully protected, regardless of what state they live in, guaranteeing that no hopeful parent or doctor is punished. We face a lot of tough calls as senators. This just isn't one of them. Yep. Uh, It's going to be really interesting to see how this goes. And frankly, um, even if it uh, does pass by unanimous consent in the Senate, um. Who knows what's going to happen in the House? Uh, Mike Johnson has told us repeatedly that if you want to find out his position on any issue, just look to the Bible. 
I don't think in vitro fertilization is mentioned in the Bible, but um, we'll see how that goes. I just hope that she's uh, able to accomplish this. Um, Andy Miles uh, was um, look, taking a look at that press conference today, and he shared with me that uh, Tammy Baldwin, Amy Klobuchar, Patty Murray uh, were also at this. This is something that women take real offense at. Um, whether you are pro or against the, a woman's right to autonomy, whether including her right to decide on an abortion, who could be against Science helping women have children who can't otherwise have them. I mean, what nincompoop thinks that that is a bad thing? Chuck Schumer also spoke at this in vitro fertilization press conference this morning. Listen to him. It's heartbreaking. It's enraging. And Republicans know it. They know it. They're like the dog who caught the bus. They play ball with these hard right ideologues. And then they, they, even though they back all these other, mo- other movements, including repealing Roe, they're now desperately backpedaling over the last few days because they see what they have done. These Republicans are like the arsonist who set a house on fire and then said, why is it burning? But let us be very clear. <clears throat> Republicans who have spent decades packing our courts with hard-right judges and who have called for national abortion bans deserve zero benefit of the doubt now that the consequences of their agenda are sinking in and even spreading. The shameful state of women's health care and women's health care freedoms is a product, a direct product of hard-right Republican agenda, which too many other Republicans have gone along with lock, stock, and barrel. Republicans own what happened in Alabama. Republicans own the disasters that emanate from Roe v. Wade. And Democrats are absolutely committed to doing everything, everything we can to protect women, families, reproductive freedom. Republicans will learn when it comes to attacks on personal freedoms, the American people do not easily forget. Well... You know, we're getting awful close to an election for Republicans to be pulling this really far right, really anti-woman, really anti-family stuff. If there was ever a party that was asking to be utterly decimated at the polls, this is that party. Not the hardcore MAGAs. They don't care. Literally, they do not care about anything. Um, You know, I was... um, it was a Nicole Wallace was talking to somebody who described the them as having a, a they they look at Trump like Jesus, and there were some. Andy also sent me this. Jimmy Kimmel apparently sent a um, reporter out to talk to some MAGA followers, and she would ask them a question, and she would say, "Well, what do you think about Joe Biden doing this?" And they'd be like, "Oh, it's awful. He's terrible." Oh, she goes, "Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I got confused." Uh, let me ask that question again the right way. What do you think about Donald Trump doing this? Oh, well, you know, I mean, if he thinks it's necessary over and over again, and we've seen this, we've seen this with Jordan Klepper on The Daily Show. You know what? You know, what if Trump did this? Um, 
or what if this happened? It would be a bad thing. Oh, yeah, that'd be a bad thing. Well, what if Trump did it? Oh, well, then it wouldn't be a bad thing because, you know, then it would be a good thing. It's it's terrifying to me where we are in this country right now. It is terrifying to me. Eric Swalwell was on with Nicole Wallace yesterday, and he talked about these Republicans, the way they follow Trump, the way they are desperate to attack Biden, the way nobody else in the world. I mean, forget about Ukraine and Israel. You know, if you were Taiwan, would would you trust these people? Um, Listen to what Eric Swalwell had to say on Nicole Wallace on MSNBC. Republicans are soft on Russia. Uh, They see this as Trump likes Russia. Russia likes Trump. So we have to go with Trump. And that's how they're going to view this uh, all the way through. And it's too bad because if you really took a step back, you would see that Ukraine's freedom ultimately uh, is America's freedom. Uh, that, that's the story of history when it comes uh, to Russia and, and brutal, ruthless uh, dictators. But the other piece here, because they love to you know, thump their chest and say they're tough uh, on China. Well, I don't know. If you're Taiwan and you're watching, you don't feel so yeah, you're watching the yeah. Republicans walk away from Ukraine, why would you for a second right. think that they would stand up for you when you're attacked? Let, let me ask you this. What is it that, that, that Democrats want from the Department of Justice when it comes to the Smirnov use in the impeachment sham? Yeah. Well, it, it's very clear that Smirnov was working with Russian intelligence by his own mm-hmm. admission. And the Republicans were so eager to put this out there just to beat up Joe Biden and for, in furtherance of never accepting him as president. So we do want to know, you know, what what notice did you have of his uh, lack of credibility? You know, when did you when did you learn that he was not a credible witness? And why would you continue to do this? Because now if you look at who they relied upon in their investigation, they have someone who was indicted for working uh, essentially as a Chinese agent. They have someone who's been indicted for working essentially as a Russian agent. They have another witness who is serving a 14-year prison sentence. He's currently imprisoned. So they're just relying on the least credible people because they never will accept Biden as president. And so anything that furthers delegitimizing Biden, even if it means aligning with Russia, they're all in to do that. And there you have it. This is why the Republican Party, or as a former Illinois head of the Republican Party, Pat Brady says they're not the Republican Party. They're the party of Trump. And um, that's exactly what Eric Swalwell sees. And he sees a party that cannot be trusted to govern, that cannot be trusted to support our allies. That cannot be trusted to tell the truth, for God's sake. Um, We have a caller. Jim is calling in from Arlington Heights. Hello, Jim. How are you? Hi, how are you, Joan? Pretty you good. Know, my, neighbor, my neighbor was over here, and he's an accountant. He gave me an idea to tell you. If you have any of those embryos left over, you know, frozen, why don't you deduct them off your income tax? They're dependents. Well, that would make perfect sense. I mean, if they're children, they're children, yeah. right? And you could say you right. got them. You just, just deduct them off your income tax. There you go. I'm actually, uh, I actually have uh, 15 dependents. Uh, two of them walking around kids and the other 13 in a freezer somewhere. You know, I saw uh, somebody posted a picture on social media after the Alabama Supreme Court uh, ruled against in vitro fertilization. 
and they showed the passenger seat next to a driver and the pass on the passenger seat was one of those big cartons of like 24 eggs and the caption was because of this i can now drive in the carpool lane i mean it's just, ridiculous wanted, but that's where we are i just wanted to help you out and well i appreciate that i appreciate that and you know what it, that it has to be they're either kids or they're not kids right so i think you know i think you've got a good suggestion there i think a lot of people are going to take that kind of um, attitude to heart thanks jim thank you so much for the call um one of the things that i wanted to share today there was a big meeting on capitol hill joe biden hakeem jeffries chuck schumer mitch mcconnell and mike johnson the heads of the House of Representatives and the Senate, Democrat, Republican, and the president sitting down to try to figure out aid and the budget. Um, remember, this Friday is March 1st. About 20% of the government is going to shut down because, you know, it shuts down in stages. If there is no budget passed by March 1st, we're looking at a partial government shutdown. So, and they were supposed to, they were talking about aid um, with supposedly President Biden behind closed doors trying to make the point that Ukraine can't wait. You can't, Ukraine can't wait till after the 2024 elections and then we see how everything shakes out and how many Democrats, how many Republicans, who's going to be supporting what. Ukraine literally cannot wait. There have been efforts on our part to try to get our other other Western allies to try to pick up the slack since we seem utterly incapable of um, getting anything done for Ukraine on a timely manner. That was also one of the things that they were going to be uh, talking about. And of course, you know, Mike Johnson, who originally said he wasn't going to pass a budget or aid package unless there was funding to um, do things at the border and some border changes. So the Democrats got together And in very tough negotiations, they worked out a compromise where there was more money. um, They're going to be the hiring of more people and um, changes to the immigration regulations. But by the time that uh, got out, Donald Trump, uh, you know, he doesn't have abortion. That's not a popular issue. Um, The only thing he feels that he can attack Joe Biden on is um, immigration and the border. So he let it be known to all the Republicans that um, are interested in taking his calls that he didn't want any vote. He didn't want any vote on the border because he didn't want anything that would make it look like Joe Biden was doing things that was Joe Biden was fixing the border. And so even after demanding that be added to the bill, um, they refused to vote on it. You know why? Because that was a part of the bill. And uh, so the vote went down. And uh, then when somebody put out an aid package for Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan, um, it didn't get voted on um, because it didn't have any border measures. You see that 
we won't vote on this because it doesn't have border measures. Then we won't vote on this because it does have border measures. And then after that, we won't vote on this because it doesn't have border measures. See how that see how that goes? You can't win in a scenario like that. You can't win. After the discussions today, Chuck Schumer came out and talked a little bit about the border. This is what he had to say about that. The overwhelming sentiment in that meeting is we got to do Ukraine now. And there are other issues, including border, which we should address, but not now. And there was a discussion in the room that could you do border just by um, uh, administrative action? I think Biden won that argument because he said you can't do it. We all said without personnel and you need legislation for personnel. And even the Republicans in the budget asked for more money for personnel at the border. So it was clear it was clear that we want to fix border, but it was also clear the speaker did not make didn't give a reason why you had to do one before you did the other. The speaker didn't give a reason. Oh, and you heard uh, Chuck Schumer mention Ukraine a little bit later. He talked a little bit more about uh, the discussions on Ukraine in this big, high level meeting that took place today. Listen to this. I was so, so shaken by what I saw at the border. I was I was strengthened by the by the strength of Zelensky and the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian soldiers, but shaken that here they are fighting without arms against a brutal dictator who will just do anything to kill them. And the intensity in that room was surprising to me. But because of the passion of the president, the vice president, leader, leader uh, Jeffries, speaker, uh, leader McConnell and myself, it was. And, you know, Johnson tried to answer and he made it clear he wants to do something on the border. But we made it clear to him we can't tarry or the war could be lost. And second... We had to we wanted to do border and have a tough, secure border plan, as we showed. We Democrats showed in the Senate. But he can't say it won't do Ukraine until we get border. He's tried to do border for six months and couldn't come up with a single Democratic vote. So uh, Chuck Schumer not sounding super positive about how the discussions went. I'm sure if they had come to some agreement that would have been a big part of what he said today. <sighs> kind of makes you sad, doesn't it? Makes me sad. <sighs> so uh, we wait and see. We wait and see what happens. Uh, tomorrow, Tammy Duckworth is uh, asking the Senate by unanimous acclamation to pass her access to family building measure which would, at a federal level, protect everyone's right to and access to in vitro fertilization. And um, when it comes to a budget, well, you know, let's hope this is one of those situations where there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't know about because there doesn't seem to be a lot going on. I just... You know, Mitch McConnell has always been the guy to do whatever it took uh, for him to stay in power. You know, he's not 100% different than Donald Trump. Just has a different way of doing it. 
because McConnell likes to use all of the different levers of power to stay in power. He doesn't necessarily have to break the law. But, you know, he's he's in his early 80s. He's had some health issues. There are rumblings that members of his party want to replace him. If there was ever a time for Mitch McConnell to say, damn the torpedoes and just stand up for what's right and go out. Yeah, but go out in a blaze of glory. He's not in there for the money. He's got more money than he'll ever spend in his lifetime. Go out in a blaze of glory. Remember when John McCain saved the Affordable Care Act? John McCain, who at that point was battling brain cancer? Mitch McConnell, go out in a blaze of glory. But instead, there are rumors today that he's saying that he will endorse Donald Trump in the upcoming election. Why he thinks Donald Trump will be supporting him to continue on if the Republicans take back the Senate is just crazy. But I guess he figures it's the only shot he's got. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk more politics right after this. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I'm very, very pleased to welcome back to our program Suzanne Chaud, professor of political science at North Central College. And her area of expertise is women and American politics. And Suzanne, first of all, welcome back. I'm glad you're here. I hope you're well. Oh, thanks, Joan. So happy to be here. Hope you're doing well also. And you know, last night, it's so fortuitous that we're having this discussion today. Last night, uh, Ray said, you know, let's watch Rachel Maddow, since, of course, Monday's the only night that's a possibility. So we turned it on, and I got the end of uh, Jen Psaki filling in for Chris Hayes. And... She did. I don't know if you saw the end of her show, but she did this incredible essay about the women who are opposing Donald Trump. She had this graphic. It had like Letitia James and Fonnie Willis and Cassidy Hutchinson Mm -hmm. and Sarah Matthews Mm -hmm. and a few other women who's um, who I'm forgetting right now. But she said, you know, the people really taking on Donald Trump right now mm-hmm. are largely women, younger women, mm-hmm. um, middle-aged women, but especially younger women. And she said, and wouldn't it be nice if some of the men uh, who were, let's say, like looking at Matthews and Cassidy Hutchinson, they were involved mm-hmm. in the Trump administration. She said, you know, um, some of the men like um, like John Kelly, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people like that. When are they going to start stepping up and speaking out? When are the men going to start um, doing interviews and warning people? And I know a lot of people, Mattis, Kelly, especially a lot of the military people, Millie, Mm -hmm. who were working with Trump, have said things previously. But... They have been very quiet the last few months. And mm-hmm. if there was ever a time, ever a time <laughs> to share with voters what you saw and what you experienced, 
it would seem mm-hmm. like now is the time when we are in real danger of seeing an election that puts Donald Trump back in the White House. But the women mm-hmm. are standing mm-hmm. tall and you know that they're paying mm-hmm. a huge price um, as far as. Well, first of all, you know, they're uh, the young ones, Sarah and Cassidy. You know, what Republican mm-hmm. organization is going to bring them into their midst? And, mm-hmm. you know, Letitia and Fawny Willis are getting death threats left and right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lawrence O'Donnell mm-hmm. last night was read some of the death threats that have come to Alvin Bragg. Um, and they're mm-hmm. not it's not that he gets them all the time. These have only started coming since he uh, prosecuted Donald Donald Trump since he went after mm-hmm. Donald Trump legally. Um a, I'm very proud of these women, and I'm very mm-hmm. sad that there aren't an equivalent group of men that we can point to. Mm-hmm. No, Joan, you bring up such good points, and as you were talking, I kept thinking that, um, you know, speaking truth to power is something that minoritized people have had to be brave enough to do in order to just survive in America, right? To uh, For uh, men and women of color and for those with other intersecting identities, particularly you're, you're talking about young women like Cassie Hutchinson, who have their whole careers ahead of them where they could just stay silent and try to get hired on and sort of move about the political sphere. But they felt that um, for whatever reason, they felt compelled. And mostly I think they felt compelled because they were witness to something that they felt um, would be damaging if it happened again, that they are speaking, they're speaking out knowing that there might be consequences and Alvin Bragg getting death threats, Letitia Adams and those others, you know, what you bring up, most of the people you mentioned are either black men and women or young women, and they're used to being treated differently. They're used to being oppressed. And by the, the idea that this president, this, this former president might come in and is being even more audacious in the policy that he wants to institute that would continue to oppress them. Often, they feel like they have no choice but to speak out regardless of the consequences. And I think that white men who have been in power, who want to write books about their time in office and being in power, don't feel the same compulsion because for the most part, they will continue to be just fine. You know, it's interesting. Um, Adam Kinzinger recently in one of his substacks made an interesting point kind of along those lines. You know, he said... Why aren't you hearing? Okay, it's one thing if a Republican is in office and feels that they can't say anything for fear of being targeted or, you know, primaried. But he said, you might wonder why the people who have decided not to run again or the people who've decided to retire, why are you not hearing them speak out? And he said, it's because they want to stay a part of the tribe, because where are their paychecks going to come from once they're no longer on Capitol Hill? They're going to come from the lobbying organizations. And you know what? Nobody's going to hire you to be a lobbyist if they know that your colleagues won't take your calls. So he said, Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. you know, people think that once somebody has decided to retire, uh, that suddenly that they're going to, like you said, speak truth to power. But he said, no, Mm -hmm. it's it's not in their they don't feel it's in their own economic interest to do that. Mm -hmm. No, that's a great point. And, you know, anyone that's in politics or has worked sort of in the beltway, right? It's about their rational actors. They put themselves in positions where they can get power and stay in power. 
And once you've had a taste of it, it's really nice to kind of stay in there. And so for these these members who have all these relationships that they have built, they know that once they retire from office, they're not retiring from politics altogether. And if they want to continue to make a paycheck or make a bigger paycheck, or if they do want to work to make and create policy, it's about, like you said, people taking your calls, answering the door when you knock on it. And if you have been told directly or indirectly that you speak up against this president, that nobody will work with you, it might give you pause. And it has, I think, given some of them pause um, on whether they should speak out or not. Now, we'll see if, you know, Trump does not win and does not become president again in January of 2025, if the tune changes. Um, But we won't know until then. Yeah, absolutely. I just think it is so incredibly admirable. I mean, like, I think this one woman, Sarah Matthews, um, I, I don't think she's even 30 yet. And to to just take all this on is just I, I can't even begin to describe the admiration that I have. Mm-hmm. I mean, when Cassidy Hutchinson was testifying, um, mm-hmm. just so poised and she knew what she was saying was true. Like she told that one story about how. A Donald Trump almost became violent in the car with the Secret mm-hmm. Service agent and his aide because he wanted mm-hmm. to go to the Capitol and they wouldn't take him because it wasn't safe. And mm-hmm. they told her about that and she shared that story. And the, the Secret Service agent was never called to testify, but there were mm-hmm. rumblings that he was ready to lie about it, um, to, 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 to say that it didn't happen. Um, and, and mm-hmm. I just can't. You know, I just so admire them. And there are so many women. And, you know, I know sometimes we talk about Nikki Haley because she seems like Mm. right now the hottest thing in politics. But um, she's not the only one. I mean, there are other Mm -hmm. women running. Like I'm looking at the Senate race in California Mm -hmm. where we have Katie Mm -hmm. Porter and we have Barbara Lee, um, who are Mm -hmm. both. I mean, Adam Schiff right now looks like the front runner and he certainly acquired the the most money but we have all so many talented people in office and running for office when you look around at the field mm-hmm. what um whether they're in office or running for office who stands mm-hmm. out to you yeah this is such a this has been so interesting to watch all this unfold you know we're at the beginning of the primary season so we still don't know of these candidates of these women who are running uh for congress for example who's gonna who's gonna win the win their nomination and what that's gonna look like but what we know right now at least in particular is that um women of color are running at higher rates than before particularly black women and there's four black women running for senate right now which is an unprecedented number because they're running in races where they have a chance of winning um um, typically, because electoral gatekeepers want to put their put their support behind someone they know that can win, there's this expectation that a woman or a woman of color in particular can't win. And we've seen that that's just not the case because they win at the same rate as men. And so who I'm really keeping my eye on, to your point about California, although things work a little different there with their primary system, We'll see how that shakes out, but the number of women running is really is really important. I'm looking at Lisa Blunt Rochester in Delaware. Um, so I'm not real familiar with her. Tell me about her if you would. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So the thing that one of the things that um, I've been paying attention to in particular is that so she's running in Delaware and she 
she uh, it's an open seat and she has the endorsement of um, Carper, who is the retiring senator there. Um, it's a it's a very, very white state. Um, but the fact that he endorsed a black woman who's well known in the state and because Democrats win in Delaware and she's running not she doesn't have anyone really running against her in the primary Unless something changes, we should be expecting that we're going to see Senator Blount Rochester in November, uh, excuse me, in, in January of 2025, which will put another black woman in the Senate. Um, the, the endorsement from Carper is really important. Um, she, uh, she serves in the, um, uh, in the House right now, and so she's known inside of D.C., um, but she's a relatively new member. And so um, she got the green light from the party elite in Delaware to say, we are putting our weight behind you. Um, and I think that that's really important because it's a state where you might not expect to see a black woman representing. Um, and so what my hope is that if everything goes as according to the way that the forecast looks, that she will be sworn in in January and it will be um, a signal for other black women and for the party to say, we know that they're out there. They're just not getting attention. And where can we find them so we can run them so they can win and we can diversify our Congress? When you look at the terrific women running um, for higher office right now, what qualities do they have in common? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is um, something we study a lot is, uh, you know, for example, what we, we sort of joke, although it's not that much of a joke, that when a man wants to run for office, he's like, oh, I think I'll run for Congress, right? Particularly a white man, right? I have the connections. I have the know-how. I'm just going to run, and, and we'll see what happens. But we know that women, when they make the decision to run, have to be overqualified. Yep. They have to know everyone, right? They have to be overprepared. They have to run when the timing is exactly correct based on if they're mothers, if they've had mm-hmm. children, you know, the status of their lives because of the way they will be judged. And so one thing that we look at the women that are running this year, um, they're more diverse in terms of age and in terms of um, how old their children are. So one thing we've seen over the past couple of cycles is more young mothers running and winning. Part of the reason more young mothers are running is because they lobbied to um, and finally got um, uh, legislation passed where they can use campaign funds for child care, which is something that hasn't happened or didn't happen until the last couple of election cycles. It's a campaign expense. Child care is a campaign yeah. expense. And it was it was outlawed previously. And so Katie Porter was at the head of this, actually, when she ran the first time. Um, so that sends a signal that there'd be time and space for a younger woman to run. Um, so we are seeing that that's a little bit of a difference. We're seeing more uh, Latina candidates, Asian American candidates, black candidates running. Um, things we see in common, though, is typically they've held elected office before, either at the local or state level, and that they have some type of name recognition if they're running in seats where they can win. They're being rational, and they're running in places where they can win. Um, And that sends a signal to the party that you run a woman and she can win. Yeah, makes makes perfect sense. And I think it's Mm -hmm. interesting that you talk about how it is a different decision in most instances, for a woman to decide to run, because people forget, because she's been so prominent for seemingly forever, people forget that mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi did not really mm-hmm. run for office until she had finished raising her five kids. I mean, she That's and her right. husband, you know, they they were donors, they had fundraisers, but actually getting out there and running for elected office, she did it very late in life. Um, Which... Which I would just say, Joan, is, is typical, right? I mean, the statistics right now, there are 37 members of Congress 
who are mothers with minor children, which is only 7% of all of Congress. And so that is an incredibly small amount. And it is because, you know, the points about Nancy Pelosi is that even though she had all the know-how and all the connections, you know, her family was an institution in the San Francisco area, she knew that she would be judged in a way that would not allow her to be elected if she was still home raising her babies. And so Mm -hmm. she waited, which is why the average age of women in Congress is higher than the average age of the men, because they run later. And so then they're older when they get in. And I will just note that it's also harder for them to then retire because they haven't been in for as long as their male colleagues. We look at Diane Feinstein, who died in office. Think about how late she ran and compared to her male colleagues. You have a lot to accomplish in a shorter amount of time. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking to Professor Suzanne Chad from North Central College. Um, She's a political science professor whose area of expertise is women and American politics and gender Uh, We're going to continue our discussion right after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. And I'm joined by political science professor Suzanne Chad, who is at North Central College. And uh, Suzanne, I was looking over some of the classes that you teach, and the one that caught my eye was civic well-being. I think me and my audience could use a tutorial in civic (laughs) well-being. What should we know? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad that this is one of the classes you picked out. It's a a new class we just started offering the past couple of years. And um, what we do is what I do is basically is what we try to help people understand is so there's eight dimensions of wellness. And we think of wellness, we think of you know, physical health, and we think of mental health, spiritual health, but there's also social wellness. And one of the main components of social wellness is civic engagement. The more connected you are to your community, the more you feel like what's good for them is good for you, um, the greater your social well-being and the way to cultivate that is through civic engagement. And so what, we, what I do with the students over the semester is we talk about those dimensions of wellness, and we talk about ways that being civically engaged can be challenging and you may not feel like your voice is one that is welcome in a political system that wasn't built for you, but, and acknowledging that while also acknowledging that there might be ways, creative ways to have your voice heard, to be connected in your community. And because of this virtual world in which we live with technology, community doesn't have to be just when you step outside of your door. Community can be those who are like you all across the country and all across the world. And so how do we build those connections to feel like we can make a difference in society? Um, and I've had just the best time, the best time teaching it. Now, you just said something that sort of goes against a lot of my reading, and that was, you know, if you're that connecting or trying to connect on online over the interwebs mm-hmm. can be socially isolating. How mm-hmm. How is mm-hmm. what you're talking about different? Yeah, this is such a good point to bring up because when I, uh, it feels counterintuitive to say, please spend time online when the research suggests <laughs> yeah. the more time you spend online, yeah. the worse it is, right? And so I think one of the distinguishing features is what are you doing with your time online, right? And so what we know is that what we call social capital, right? So when you are in your community and you're rooted in the space um, and you've networked with people and you feel connected to them, your sense of, um, of social capital is greater and so you're more likely to be civically engaged. And the way to get that capital is being with the people, right? 
But what we know, actually, the research is that you can build social capital in a virtual space if you are looking to make connections with people and not spending time, you know, doing other things that are more isolating or solitary. And I will note here also that um, where research needs to go, I would say, is that, you know, what type of connections are you making and over and over what types of issues, right? So being radicalized online as a means to build social capital is different from building connections with people to, um, to have a positive and, um, and sort of larger impact on the community. And so what you're doing online very much matters in whether it's isolating or whether it roots you in a community. So when you say um, about connecting with people and being engaged, you're not just talking about like being connected with like your local Democratic Party. You're not just talking about politics, right? Absolutely. So what we know about Gen Z and the upcoming Gen Alpha is that they're less motivated by partisanship and, and politics, and they're more motivated by social advocacy and policies. And so this is a way we think about building community online is not, you know, clicking a button to, to, to donate or to volunteering with a party, although those are things you can do. But it's Who's working on the issues I care about? Who cares about the things I care about? Where is there a rally? Where is there a protest? Where are there petitions? What are you doing in this town that I'm doing in this town? And we can bring our efforts together to make real change. Um, that's where the, the young people are motivated is to make change in terms of advocacy and more informal means as opposed to the more sort of formal political means. You know, I guess I've... I think what I've been doing on this show recently is a cousin to what you're talking about, because I'm you know, I've been talking to people. Obviously, we have an election coming up on March 19th and, of course, a bigger election coming up in November. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've said on the on the radio, you know, sometimes it can feel overwhelming. You get these ballots and there are like like, you know, five pages of judges or something else. And you you just you know, you feel like you have to know so much. And I said a a way I think and I want you to weigh in on this for people to be informed in a way that is in accordance with their values and in a way that's not overwhelming is to what group, what groups do you think do great work? Do you like the Sierra club? Um, um, are you a fan of injustice watch or the better government association or the league of women voters or, you know, some an other environmental group, almost all of those bigger groups will put out, um, a ballot guide, you know, uh, like with the League of Women Voters, they don't endorse any candidates, but they'll tell you, here's everything you know about this candidate. You know, they were uh, successful in launching this program. They were accused of this bad behavior. Um, just um, is it this week or next week? I think it's next week. I'm going to be talking to uh, David Kidwell from Injustice Watch, and they have a big judicial guide out. And, you know, it's like find your the people Find your uh-huh. your group, your tribe, and if it's like um, and if it's like the Sierra Club, then look to those people for recommendations mm-hmm. for um, how to vote when an election comes around. So you feel informed but not overwhelmed, because sometimes I think you almost have to specialize on the internet because it's so overwhelming. 
Mm-hmm. No, you're so right. And I talk about this and the research is really clear that like being inundated with information can actually have the opposite effect, right? You can get turned off because of feeling overwhelmed. And especially if you're being reached out to by campaigns and parties and candidates and you're getting texts and emails and flyers and, you know, you see it on social media, it's it's just to the point where you have to just click stop or say stop and bow out altogether. And so how can you streamline that to only consume content about things you care? And I think your suggestions are great ones. There's, you know, there's individual groups like ones that you mentioned that deal with particular issues. And then there are sort of larger groups that um, are more general groups, right, that care about progressive causes and conservative causes and those that advocate for particular types of policies. And so and do this both locally and also nationally. And so finding them and using that as a guide and then also using their resources of other places to follow and other things to read definitely helps do that legwork for you. I am talking with political science professor Suzanne Chad. She is at North Central College. We are going to continue our talk Um, I'll probably, after we come back from the news, want to be asking her about this most recent Alabama Supreme Court ruling. You know, the one on uh, in vitro fertilization. And we'll talk about that and we'll talk about other things right after the news. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. I am happy to uh, welcome uh, Professor Suzanne Chad back to our program. She is a political science professor at North Central College. And um, women and how they interact with the political system is uh, one of her big areas of expertise. So I want to talk to you, Suzanne, about this Alabama Supreme Court ruling that essentially says that um, little groups of cells, frozen embryos, are extra uterine children. And as I said on the radio last week, you know, I have two extra uterine children. One is 26 and the other is is 30. Um, But I've never Mm -hmm. thought of a small frozen uh, group of a few cells as an extra uterine child. What do you think about this ruling and what might be next? Yeah, it, it, you know, what's interesting is that I... It wasn't getting a lot of press as it was circulating. And then, of course, when the ruling came out, um, this is all that we've been talking about. It's all that my students want to talk about, particularly my my female-identifying students. Because the fear, which is a lot of the fear that happened after the overturning of Roe, was what will they come for next? And I think that now saying that an embryo, that life begins at fertilization, right? We're not even saying life begins at conception. Now we're saying life begins at fertilization outside of a uterus. And that in the process of IVF, which for any of us who know anything about it or have gone through it, that the the destruction of embryos or the donating of embryos is common practice. And it's one of the only ways that IVF can happen. It halts it altogether. Um, And as we're seeing in Alabama, there's these clinics that are like, I don't know whether I'll be charged with manslaughter if we go through this procedure the way that we would have to. And while the state's attorney has said that they won't go after any providers, 
that is not a guarantee that that won't actually happen. And so I think politically, it's been interesting to see um, Republicans in particular try to figure out how to take a stance on this. And if I could just note, especially because so few people understand the science behind in vitro fertilization, because so few people understand reproduction in general. Um, but to hear like Tommy Tuberville, who's the senator from Alabama, not be able to discuss the topic and try to form a position on it just shows us why elected officials should not be making decisions on a woman's body and what she does with her reproductivity. And to that end, the concern now, particularly for my students, is what, in order to control a woman's body even further, what comes next? And we're having conversations about how this affects access to contraception for women. Absolutely. And there have been Republicans who have said publicly that, um, they question whether or not contraception should be as available it is. Heck, we've got mm-hmm. at least three or four red southernish states that are trying to pass legislation to basically mm-hmm. make it illegal for someone to travel to another state to get an abortion mm-hmm. that they can't get in their state. I mean, That's right. <clears throat> this is um, if I were a young woman right now. I would I think I would be in equal parts terrified and outraged. How are you how do especially your female students when they look around yeah. and they see I mean this is like the handmaid's tale starting to come to life here a book that I never wanted to read because I thought it was so ridiculous when it came out. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's the 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 rage the sort of the the fear and outrage is such a good way to say it because when Dobbs, the Dobbs decision came out, it was it was more rage. And now, as we've seen other parts of women's body autonomy being taken away from them, and then the, the, the fear that it will continue down that path, it has turned to rage and what can I do, right? Now, it doesn't mean that it's replaced the fear. I had a student last week, as we were talking about it, in, in, an earnest student, and she said, I know they can't take away our voting rights because in the Constitution, but but it kind of feels like that might be something that they might consider. And I had never had anyone say anything like that before. And I think that just shows where how a lot of women feel, especially women of younger women who are of reproductive age um, and who are thinking about family planning or not family planning. Right. Um, I wonder, just like we talked about with the 2022 midterms after the overturning of Roe, what this does as we move into this election cycle, because that was a catalyzing event for young women and young women of color who made a real difference in the electoral outcomes. And I wonder if we're going to see the same thing coming into November. Well, and also, too, you know, um, young women aren't generally um, real unless they you know, have a trust fund baby. They're not real high on the economic scale. But IVF, IVF mm-hmm. is going after women who are generally a little older and have a yes. lot more disposable income because IVF mm-hmm. is not cheap by any stretch of the imagination. It costs thousands and thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And women and are it's not covered by insurance. No, in most cases, it is not covered by insurance. Right. And it right. usually takes many rounds before it works. So it's hugely. Okay. So this time, you know, so the Republicans have not only <laughs> ticked off uh, young women, but but perhaps older women who really have the kind of money that uh, politicians usually don't want to alienate. It's just 
It's well, you know, one thing that I think is becoming more and more clear and some of us saw it from the very beginning. But to those who didn't, it's becoming more and more clear that none of this ever had anything to do with um, states rights. This was always about adopting a conservative religious attitude toward women and their bodies and their rights. I think the, that's showing now more and more every day. Do you th- agree with that or not? Yeah, I, you know, it's never been about babies. It's never been about families. It's been about control. Right. I mean, we we know that what freed women up more than anything else was first access to contraception and then access to reproductive care and abortion care. And that's where we see women being educated at higher rates, being able to hold jobs, not being able to get divorced and get out of abusive relationships and stand on their own two feet. And so there's this backlash now that we've seen Um that's really coming back around since these advances in the 60s and 70s to try to control women because by controlling their body, you control everything else about them. And, and, and especially when you look at the Alabama ruling, to your point, Joan, about invoking religion, I mean, there were overt mentions to religious doctrine in the opinion itself. Um, more passive references in some of the Supreme Court opinions, but overt references in this one. And, um, you know, and that's, I mean, my gosh, that's another hour in and of itself, of course. But, um, <laughs> but I think what I was, I could just go back to quickly, your point that you made about, you know, overturning Roe and how that really catalyzed and outraged young women um, and how now basically having a ruling and if it spread, that could in effect make IVF defunct houses that then outrages older um, women with more means. This is particularly the case for, like, white, educated suburban women, which is a group of women that the Republican Party has been losing and wants to get back. Um, And they lost some of them with the overturning of Roe, but this is not going to do anything to get them back. I know. It's um, it's uh, it's just uh, well, you know, the head of the Supreme Court in Alabama is um, a guy that makes no bones. What did he say? He said something along the lines of, um, you know, any kind of any kind of scientific uh, measures that uh, might destroy these embryos was uh, here going to incur the wrath of a holy God. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a guy who's done interviews with QAnon podcasters, and he seems to exemplify a certain part of the Republican Party. And even though that may not be the majority part, apparently the rest of them are so afraid of the radical religious far-right Republicans that they are not going to stick their neck out in in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the you know this is if I could take just a quick a bit of a turn here, right? Is that we might say like, well, this is something that would happen in the in a southern state. This is something that would happen in a very red state. This is something that would happen in a state that is you know more overtly religious in practice. And and but I don't. I think it's short sighted to expect that it might stay there, right? Because we already oh, know there absolutely. were a couple of other states that were thinking that were thinking of doing exactly the same thing. And so um, as this gets more traction, well, 
I will say it this way. The expectation it was going to get more traction happened immediately, but then we saw so much scrambling over the weekend on the Republicans, for, for Republicans to say, like, well, wait, we support families and we support in vitro um, because we want people to have, be able to have children. And so they're trying to figure out how to take position on it. But if it is popular in some places, then states can continue to pick away at this, which is going to be interesting to see because Tammy Duckworth was just being interviewed today, and they're introducing a piece of legislation to try to fast-track it through the Senate to protect IVF access nationally. Um, I don't suspect this will get anywhere in the House, though. That's exactly what I said earlier. It's called the Access to Family Building. And she wanted – she's going to bring it before the Senate tomorrow, and she uh, wants it – to be basically um, uh, uh, voted by a claim, which just means we all agree with it. You know, let's pass it. Moving mm-hmm. on. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, and I let the house I, do its thing. Yeah, and if the Republicans in the Senate are smart, they will definitely um, they will definitely unanimous a claim. I think is what she's asking for. I think that they will yeah. they will definitely go for that. But in the House, mm-hmm. forget it. I, I I think it'll be a yeah. miracle if the House is able to keep the government open. Uh, as of next That's week, right. we I, and four, I really do. I'm talking days, to Jan yeah. Schakowsky, um, one of Illinois' bestest Congress people, and uh, she's leaving to go back to D.C. tomorrow. And I'm, one of the things I'm going to ask her is, why are you bothering, Jan? Why are you bothering? You know? Yeah, I mean, the, this is what's so interesting is that anything that gets unanimous consent in the Senate, like it's very rare that this happens anymore. And I think that you're right, Joan, that this is one of those things that it would it would benefit Republicans in the Senate as well to take a stand and, and say, like, OK, yes, we think that there should be access to, to IBS in this way. And this bill was introduced previously, but it's gotten more co-sponsors and getting more traction now after after the ruling. But I think, you know, what is Tommy Tuberville going to do? Is he going to vote for this? Is he going to, well, you know, not he's not going to do anything until somebody explains to him what in vitro fertilization is and what it means yeah, and how that. it works and what yeah. the repercussions are, because he clearly doesn't know any of that or anything that increases families. And the reporter was like, well, um, actually, uh, it's kind of the opposite of that. Oh, well, I got to study this. Good yes, God. Yes. He said, I need to look more into this, but also an embryo is a baby. Right. So you can't uh, taking this is where the, hype, the sort of hypocritical positions kind of come into play. So honestly, because unanimous consent doesn't require all 100 senators, it just requires every senator that's present. To vote for it. Maybe he just doesn't show up that afternoon um, to try to avoid that, both having to understand it, but also, you know, the political wrath of potentially voting for it. But regardless of what happens, we know how Mike Johnson's stance on these issues. He's very open about it and also invoking religion in the same way that the, the, the chief justice in Alabama did. And he gets to decide whether something hits the floor. And I think he could, to your point, be like, we can't take this up. We have to try to fund the government first. And so it's one more thing that has to do with women's reproductive health that gets punted to a later date. Yep. Uh, Professor Suzanne Chad and I are going to take a real quick break. We're going to be back with much more politics right after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with political science professor Suzanne Chad. She's from North Central College. And, you know, um, the Michigan primary is uh, today. And there have been calls for Democrats to uh, protest and not vote for Joe Biden, but uh, vote for, I, I think in Michigan, there's a possibility to vote for like other or none of the above 
Um, but anyway, there's been this call uh, to come out and don't bo- vote for Joe Biden to show him how upset you are with how things are going in Gaza. Do you what do you think about that idea about using that process to send a, a message on an issue? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've been so interested to see how this plays out and this idea of um, this sort of push for voters to show up and to vote uncommitted, right, as opposed to, to voting for Biden. And um, and I, I will say this, that I, I understand and I always appreciate advocacy and activism in whatever form it takes, right? If the way that you want to send a message to an elected official, that you do not agree with what they're doing is through the ballot box, then at least you're showing up, right? And so I'm all for advocacy, The political scientist in me is wondering a little bit about the strategy and what the outcome of this is, right? Because this is an uncontested primary. And so if the message they're trying to send is, we are uncommitted in the primary now, and that is to show you that come November, we're either not going to show up to vote for you at all, or we're going to vote for Donald Trump. And I think that the the, the likely scenario there is they're sending a message to say, if you don't turn things around, we're not showing up in November at all. And in such a competitive state, obviously, this is something that would benefit who we assume to be the can- the, the nominee and, and former President Trump. And so um, I, I think now, especially, and I was talking to my students this morning about this, because the news broke that we are, it's possible we're going to have a ceasefire starting next week. Most of this brokered by the Biden administration. But a lot of the students where this has been a big issue for them are saying it's too little too late. It is years and years and years and years of us wanting to see not blind allegiance to Israel and 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 not funding with we- funding and weapons and it's too little too late since October seventh for this to now be happening and is it only a political stunt because you feel like you're going to be losing faith with the Muslim community the Palestinian American community and young and young voters and I hadn't really thought about them thinking of it in that way before. And I think that that's something that the Biden administration and the Biden campaign needs to think about is that is a turnaround orchestrated by the Biden administration that has taken months because this stuff foreign policy doesn't happen overnight. Does it even really matter because they're just too frustrated by the fact that we got to this point? Wow. Um, Suzanne, we've had a couple of callers who've been waiting to join the conversation Let's go uh, to Ron, who's calling in from Chicago. Hey, Ron, you're on with me and Professor Chad. What was your question or comment? Yes. uh, Most Republicans, uh, except in Alabama, are saying that uh, frozen embryos are not, is not a child. But uh, right after an embryo is implanted, does it suddenly become a child? And if not, then you're a pro-choice, and Republicans are not pro-choice. So I'm a little confused about the whole situation. Yeah, I think they're confused too, Ron. Um, I, you know, like, well, like the professor said, they don't, they're not basing this on the science um, at all. They're basing this on um, a, what appears to be a religious religious belief. And you know what? If your religion says a certain thing to you, then that's exactly what you should do. But dear God in heaven, don't make me do it, too, if I don't have the same religion as you. Um, that's not that's not fair. Um, thanks for the call, Ron. Um, your thoughts, Suzanne? Yeah, it, this is where I think what, what Ron said is, is interesting and, and hits it on the head in terms of how hypocritical this appears to be. Right. You can't be so pro-family that you are anti-choice. 
but also anti-IVF. Um, and because the court has, the Supreme Court has been unwilling to rule on when life begins because they are not scientists, although they've tried to get closer to it with the Dobbs decision, um, that to say sometimes we think it's this and sometimes we think it's this um, doesn't really um, – not taking a position because you don't understand how to take the position. Hmm. That's very transparent at some point. I think that's where we are. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, you're on with me and Professor Chad. Go ahead. Hey. Yes. To me, history has always been a contest between the male and the species trying to uh, put their will over on the other person. And what we're entering is where women, I think, after 1920, getting a vote and coming into politics, because really it's only it's only 100 years. And I think it'll change the face of politics, because being a male, I, I know that they gauge everything on, you know, like a contest, a contest for their mate, a contest for goods and services, and so on and so forth. And that's been the things for centuries. I think we're coming into a new era now, and uh, only for the best, only for the best, because all the great movements in the world are usually, once women get get started on it, that's when it, that's when it goes. Well, you know, anyway, you're talking you to the expert on women in politics. Uh, would you agree with that, that once the women get involved, that's when everything really gets going? Oh my gosh. I mean, Joan, this is the first thing that you mentioned about these women speaking truth to power to mm-hmm. President Trump, right? Whether yep. it's Bobby Willis, whether, right, whether it's James, whether whomever it is, right? That, that, um, it's when, I like it when women get things going, right? And this is the thing is that when, when women are systemically oppressed by the patriarchy and finally get a little bit of traction, they are, not going to slow down, right? Once we're given an inch, we're going to take the mile because we don't know when we're going to get another inch, right? That's right. But that that strategy is what's so scary, right? Because once we take that mile, then we're going to take another one and we're going to take another one. And we're still going to be miles behind where men are. But the closer we creep up, the more likely it is, or the fear, I should say, that we're going to replace them and they're no longer necessary and they're going to lose their social position. So when we creep up and get some miles, even though we're miles behind, they're going to try to send us as far back as possible. Yeah. Um, Before I let you go, uh, I want to ask you about... um we, I said we weren't going to talk about Nikki Haley. So just for uh, just for a quick second, um, after she yeah. didn't do um, well, I never thought she was going to win South Carolina. The experts said she'd get 36 percent. She got more than that, which I thought was uh, was a pretty good showing, but apparently not enough for the Koch network, who's announced that mm-hmm. they are going to turn their focus to uh uh, congressional and Senate races going forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nikki is essentially cut off from that source of funding. Were you surprised by that? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. And, uh, well, I'll say this. She got more of a percentage of the vote than I expected in South Carolina, mm-hmm. which, unfortunately, you know, sort of like in New Hampshire, like doing better than expected but not winning is a win, right? Um, and so the question is, like, what was she doing in the past month or so that was getting her distraction where she could do better? Or is it simply just that she's from South Carolina? My inclination is that it's her home state, so she did better than expected. But 
campaigns are expensive. Chris costs in the country is expensive. Ads are expensive. The overhead of paying your staffers, buying toilet paper in your field offices, that stuff is expensive. And donors want to back someone that they think can win. And where the Koch brothers and others think they can make the biggest difference because the Senate map is favorable to Republicans, is pouring that money there. You want to hate the analogy, but like you don't want to bet on a losing horse. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Nikki Haley has never really had a chance of being the winning horse. And I appreciate that she says she wants to stay in the race as long as possible. You know, we've got a couple of weeks a week until Super Tuesday. I just don't see a path forward for her to be able to just like literally keep the lights on in her campaign. Yeah. One of the um, political pundits who I follow said that when your chief of staff comes out and says, like with Ron DeSantis, they were like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. we have enough money to go through New Hampshire and 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 past New Hampshire. And uh, I think it was James Carville said that, you know, when your when your chief of staff comes out and says that the one thing you can be sure of is that they do not have enough money <laughs> to do what they said they were going to yes. do. And sure enough, oh, before yeah. New Hampshire even rolled around, Ron DeSantis folded his tent. So I'd mm-hmm. like to think that uh, Nikki will last to Super Tuesday. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. a week away. But as you said, cool. campaigns, especially at this level, are not mm-hmm. cheap. So I guess we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah, I I think that her push now is going to be to really try to drum up those individual donations, whether they be from wealthy donors or the everyday Americans to say, hey, you didn't want big money in politics. Well, guess what? My big donors are out. You want to keep me in this race? Go to NikkiHaley.com and donate. And Mm -hmm. that I expect to be is is, is what's going to be her message over the next week. Um, But it's getting harder and harder. It's getting it was hard before, but it's getting harder and harder for her to make the case that she can take on Trump to take on Biden. Um, and it's, it's just not it's just not feasible at this point. Yeah. Uh, political mm-hmm. science professor Suzanne Chad, thank you so much for being here. I always have so much fun talking with you. Oh, and me please, too, Joan. I hope to get to talk to you again soon. Yeah. And please say hello to your students for me. They should I listen when you're on so they can ask you about the things you say. <laughs> I will, I've got to make sure to do that. I will okay. next time. <laughs> we are going to take a break. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am thrilled to welcome Jan Schakowsky to our program. My favoriteest congressperson ever. Jan, how are you doing? Andy, I don't hear Jan. Oh, there she is. Ah, we got you you now. Yes. Okay. Oh, I am absolutely fine. I'm optimistic that we're going to win the next election. Um, But in the meantime, it's a mess, Joan. It's a mess. I was just talking to uh, Suzanne Chad, a political science professor, and I said one of the things that I was going to ask you was, why are you bothering to go back to uh, Washington tomorrow? Do you really think there's going to be a budget bill? Well, I think there will not be a budget bill, and I think it is very uh, unlikely that they're going to be able to um, even get a, a continuing resolution, um, which means that, and this is sounds complicated, it means that they'll have to, because they don't have the votes, they don't have the votes, there are enough Republicans right now who won't even kick the can down the road. 
and they just want to shut down at least a part of the government. What would happen? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, good. Go ahead. Um, I, I don't know. I got some other sounds here. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Um, it, you know, so they, they may not even be able to kick the can down the road because some of them want to shut down the government. It's unbelievable. So that means that we'll pass it with a uh, on a, a, a suspension vote, and that's a three-day wait to be able to um, maybe do something to kick the can down the road, and that would bring mean I have to spend the weekend in, in uh, Washington. I mean, it's, it's so insane, I can't even begin to tell you. They can't get anything done. This is a group of Republicans that cannot govern, period, end of story. Do you think that meeting that took place, that big powwow, McConnell, Mike Johnson, Chuck Schumer, um, the president, the vice president, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, did do you think, you know, I heard a couple of comments made to reporters when they came out. I didn't hear anybody coming out and saying, oh, my God, this is wonderful. We've got a deal. No, no, because the people who are speaking for the Republicans, the uh, speaker, um, the speaker of the House, um, certainly Mitch McConnell doesn't really have any uh, clout from for the uh, the House members. No, because they are out of control. So there is no commitment that the uh, speaker can do that. Uh, Mike Johnson can do. There's nothing he can do. Mike Johnson can't do it. Uh-uh. He can't do it because of the because to to get something passed, he'd have to do it in a bipartisan way, and that would be the death of his uh, position as speaker. Uh, he can't do it because he's in, lives in fear of Marjorie Taylor Greene. What what is what is okay, what is Mike all, Johnson's all, problem at this all point? Those, all, all those, um, I think that uh, he could absolutely be dumped from his job as the uh, the, the speaker. Um, he doesn't have the votes because he only has about, as you pointed out, a tiny margin in the uh, in the House of Representatives, and it could be death to him if he tries to do something in a bipartisan way. No, he really, this is dysfunction. Do those same roadblocks, do those same roadblocks that you're talking about with the budget also mean that even though it is desperately needed, we will not see aid for Ukraine? Oh, I I think that is as much up in the air uh, because what the Republicans want to do is to add all kinds of things, mostly dealing with the um, what they say is the crisis at the border, our southern border. Um, and so, you know, I again, I don't see how he has the uh, the, the votes to to do that. Now, the Senate, of course, did do a uh, a, a bill, um, but you know, I don't know that we can uh, we can get it through the House unless. There is some sort of bipartisanship there. Now, I understand 
and maybe uh, maybe I don't understand, maybe I just think I understand, um, a bill has to be sort of um, shepherded to the House of Representatives by Mike Johnson, that no bill is going to be put before you for a vote unless Mike Johnson has um, made that happen. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. He controls the floor of the House of Representatives. And so if he decides not to call the bill, it is not automatic that there would, uh, that that vote would take place in the House. Right. So, you know, he can stop, he can stop it all. But even, but the question is, can he really start it all? And can he finish it all? That's the big question. And, um, it's, it's just so frustrating and so consequential. You know, especially when it comes to Ukraine and, of course, also humanitarian assistance um, that we want to provide to um, all the people who are suffering so much in Gaza. So uh, my question again, is anything you're flying back to Washington tomorrow? Is anything going to happen? Anything at all? Maybe we, you could all vote on honoring somebody or naming a street after somebody. It, it doesn't seem like the bipartisan cooperation is going to be anything beyond that. You know what? I'm okay with that. Because the more the Republicans demonstrate themselves as totally inept, unable to deliver, I think more the better then. I mean, I think the American people then should revolt in disgust. And say, we cannot have Democrats in charge. And that includes, um, we certainly can't have Donald Trump in charge. That's part of the problem. Because right now, because it's so clear that he's going to be the nominee, that the, uh, the Speaker and all the Republicans defer entirely to wait to see what he says. How do you want this done? And if... Uh, the, and if he says, no, we're not going to do anything for Ukraine because I like Russia, if that's what Trump says, then that's what they do. It's but, frightening. But, okay, they're all, and I, I agree with you, they're all taking their cues from Donald Trump. But Donald Trump has never been known as a strategic thinker. Um and they are doing things that whether or not they will appease Donald Trump in the short term, they're doing things that are going to hurt their chances at the ballot box all across the country for the whole party. As you say, I mean, there's you know, we got this big backlash when Roe v. Wade fell and Donald Trump took credit for that. We've got this pending backlash about what's going on with in vitro fertilization. Even the Republicans know, at least in the Senate, that's a loser advising the candidates to say that they're all for for IVF. Um, we are coming up on what will likely be at least a short-term partial government shutdown. And while, you know, we all know Donald Trump loves this kind of chaos and thinks that people are too stupid to realize that he's behind a lot of it, in the long term, this is going to devastate Republicans running for office. Don't you think, Jan? I hope so. I hope so. I would think even by now that they have seen enough. That these people are not capable of making the United States of America function. 
Um, but, you know, right now, if they do not, um, if they shut down partially the government, here's some of the things that happen. It would also cut, uh, eliminate the agriculture bill. We may say, well, we're not so worried about that. Guess what's in the agricultural bill? This is all the funding for the SNAP program, for the nutrition programs. Do we want this actually to shut down? Um, veterans are in this first uh, round of, uh, the, uh, of the budget. That would be horrible to take away the, not to mention, all of the federal workers who are doing these jobs. The housing program would be shut down. I mean, it's, this is a horrible thing. And then, um, a, you know, one week later, it would be the rest of the budget. And they would shut down the entire functioning government. And, you know, this people is, this is, sometimes mm-hmm. one, of, one of the Republicans um, said, oh, well, my, my voters don't care if there's a shutdown. They want things to be chaotic because they just don't think government works. And I think a lot of times people hold these ideas, oh, you know, I hate government. It doesn't work. But they don't think about the human cost. There is um, a woman I know who works for a government agency in Washington. And the last time uh, before there was a supplemental bill, the last time it looked like the government was going to shut down, she was about to have brain surgery for an aneurysm. And if the government had shut down um, her, the insurance, the medical insurance that she gets through her government job would have been, if not suspended, at the very least in question. And, you know, like it always amazes me, like people say, well, you know, undocumented um, undocumented families should not be allowed to, you know, have any kind of health care benefits. Really? And if an undocumented family, if their child falls and breaks their leg, you, you don't want them to be able to get treatment and you would rather, you know, you would rather the kid be injured or, or not re, and, and most of the people, when you put it in terms of, would you turn away this child from the ER? Well, no, that would be wrong. Well, that's what we're talking about. And, you know, when we talk about a government shutdown, those are real people, you know, who are going without salaries or who are going without, you know, maybe continuity in their medical insurance. It is it is so much more important than I think a lot of people spend time thinking about and realize. And I'm now off my soapbox. I couldn't agree with you more. We've had government shutdowns. Do they remember what chaos there was at the airports um, with, um, you know, the the workers who were, you know, some of them laid off, um, all the the chaos to be able to get on a plane and and travel? I mean, it's just everyday people are going to be hurt in the most profound ways. And you gave a great description of someone who could die. If they do not get, if, if the government doesn't function and these hospitals don't have the support that they need. It's, it's so cruel. It's so cruel. Hey, Jan, what did you think about the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas? So, you know, first try that they had, they lost by one by one vote. Um, and the speaker thought for sure he had the votes, so they don't even know how to count. 
But so they did it again. And they won um, by one single vote. And, you know, one of my colleagues on the Democratic side made the joke, oh, great, now we've solved the border problem. No, they don't offer any positive. What can we do to help the situation? Believe me, this is a good man. Mayorkas is a wonderful person and doing a good job. We do need comprehensive immigration reform. There's no question about it. We need to do better. But believe me, getting rid of him is absolutely stupid. It means nothing. And that's the kind of so-called solution that they offer for things. Instead of some real concrete proposal that can make a difference, they just go after people. And, uh, and, you know, want to uh, go after, of course, and they want to impeach Joe Biden, who's doing a hell of a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 these people are not thinking about how do we make life better for Americans? How do we make our government run in a better way? It's absolutely the opposite right now. It's shameful. You know what? And it's embarrassing, and it's also dangerous, because the rest of the world looks around and says, wait a minute, the mighty United States of America cannot get their act together. They cannot govern. They cannot make decisions. This is not good for our security here at home. Yeah. I agree. And I and I I have to believe that our allies are. Remember when Joe Biden showed up at that one meeting in Europe and he was like, America's back. And supposedly Angela Merkel said, yeah, but for how long? It's beginning to look like they had uh, every reason to be afraid with our current political situation. Jen, I wanted to talk to you on some about some legislation that I know you've been working on uh, that is going to address price gouging by big corporations. Are you talking about um, we know we all heard, you know, well, there was the, the pandemic and and then, you know, there were uh, reading the Wall Street Journal. There were initially all these fears that there was going to be all this inflation and everything. And um, some corporations started raising prices even before they needed to. And a lot of those prices have stayed high even since this uh, recession never materialized. What does specifics, uh, what specifically does your uh, legislation address? So my legislation, the uh, Price Gouging Prevention Act, Elizabeth Warren and I have uh, have introduced it. Um, so what we have seen over the last four years is an increase of about 24% of groceries. And frankly, of all the things I hear about, groceries are the, uh, are the most. And really, over, over the last year, we have seen um, a 3.1% uh, increase in, the, uh, in, 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 in prices, but we've only seen a 1% increase in the cost that these big corporations are seeing. So in other words, this is plain old price gouging, taking advantage of 
mm-hmm. um, everyday consumers, and it's it's absolutely wrong. So what my legislation would do would allow the Federal Trade Commission to require that all um, uh, U.S. companies would have to, uh, public companies would have to divulge what their actual costs are and then actually what they're charging. And we would be able to, to, to see the difference. And the uh, empowering the Federal Trade Commission also when it comes to these mergers, one of the causes of the increase, and this is happening in the uh, grocery industry as well, one of the, the things is because they are consolidating, they're buying each other, and they're going ahead and raising prices to a point that is not necessary and really hurting people. I hear, we, we get calls all the time in the office, I can't believe it. This is what I have to pay for milk. This is what I'm having to pay for everything at, you know, at the grocery store. Um, I was listening to uh, WBBM radio this morning, and they said that in, you know, uh, Wendy's, which apparently is already the priciest fast food company around and had like within the last recent period raised their prices like 30 percent that they were considering adopting the uber and lyft model and they were considering instituting surge pricing for instance like you want your breakfast um your little breakfast sandwich at breakfast time when when everybody wants a breakfast sandwich you might have to pay more I was just dumbfounded, uh, you know, and this is not a company that's, you know, they've raised their prices 30 percent in the last few years. You wouldn't think that they would be hurting and trying to figure out ways to survive. It just seems like so many companies don't really care. And I guess maybe it's naive to assume that they would care about their consumers, um, that they just care about their stockholders. But price gouging is a real thing. And if we can empower, and I think we can, the uh, Federal Trade Commission, if the President of the United States, he did make a a call with the um, grocery stores, really laid down the law, and there is, we can make some law around this, that this kind of price gouging um, could actually be made illegal. And that's what I'm trying to do with our Price Gouging Prevention Act. Um, but we don't have to just sit around and, uh, and take it. And consumers themselves can act. They can start, you know, boycotting um, these gougers. Um, and now, you know, the grocery store, that's harder. But maybe a fast food place, it's easier um, to, to say we're not, we're absolutely not going to go there. Yeah, but uh, no, this is this is not this is not right. Can you imagine? You know, that's what the, the airlines, um, you know, wanting to say. Well, if you want to sit with your whole family, that you're going to have to pay more, and all of this kind of uh, add-on. I know it's it's just it just seems really really crazy. Now, um, one of the big complaints anytime anybody tries to push any kind of legislation like this is that it'll hurt small businesses. I believe part of what you've done in this bill is try to protect small businesses. Can you talk about that? 
Yes, I mean this. The, the legislation that uh, that I'm introducing um, would say that um, public companies have, are the ones that have to divulge all of of this. But you know, more and more, there is a consolidation. You know, there there aren't that many um, mom and pop stores, um, and mom and pop stores also tend to be more sensitive to consumer ability to uh, to to buy. I'm and I'm I'm all for um, shopping more locally, for shopping again with independent companies. Um, but you get these big conglomerates and these big uh, uh, companies um, that are so large that they think that they can get away with anything. Mm-hmm. And we want we need to say no. We need to say no. I want to also talk to you. Um, are you going to be a part of this um, Democratic Party or rally in Evanston this Sunday? What's that all about? Was, it was no, actually it was uh, it was last Sunday, oh. and it's one of the reasons that I feel very positive. Um, you know, we're we're a, a pretty blue town. Um, it's the Democratic Party of Evanston. Yes, we are. But we're also mighty in the sense that over the years, um, the Democratic Party of Evanston has gotten on buses and gone to help Barack Obama and various candidates that are running for, for office, even for state legislature. And we are I'm, I'm so excited by the enthusiasm that uh, we saw a good turnout at our uh, event. And I'm going to take that all across the 9th Congressional District. Because here's the thing. The polls, you know, we have to shut down our, uh, our uh, the, we accept what we are hearing in the polls. Because we just saw an incredible event in New York 3 where the, all the pollsters were saying, oh, no, uh, it's, it's absolutely tied, uh, you know, can't, can't win. And Tom Swazi won by a large margin. Why is that? The answer is simple, turnout. Turnout, turnout, and turnout. People came out to vote. Polls only tell you the estimate of who's going to turn out. And so, you know, it's not about the margin of error. It's the margin of effort, I was telling mm-hmm. people. You know, that if we get to work, we make the decision that we're not going to have Donald Trump as the president of the United States. We're going to have the uh, most decent and hardworking and productive president in Joe Biden. So it's it's a decision that each person, each voter, each eligible person can make. So you know when we when we gather people, and I was I was actually surprised and so happy by the uh, the great turnout because you know people say oh people are so depressed they're so you know no people are ready to be invited to work and that's what I'm doing trying to invite everybody to get busy well i think that that's going to happen more and more often because i think republicans they take these really for instance the ivf decision um or you know that's just one example and they uh, i think that they some of them 
who only live in their own little echo chamber don't realize how the rest of the folks outside of that echo chamber feel about these ideas. And I think that they, um, just like, you know, with the midterms, then there was this supposedly this red tsunami. And I never for, I, I was always puzzled by that because it never seemed to me that there was anything to indicate that there was going to be a red tsunami. And indeed there wasn't. And I think sometimes not Same only are, age, Joan, yeah. you and I were saying it's not going to happen. It didn't happen. Yeah. Right. Well, um, honestly, I think that, th- that every single day people are seeing what is going on out there and you know, I know there's some people we're, we're watching now in Michigan. What is what is going to happen? There's some people who are are not happy. But you know, I I love what Joe Biden um, says. You know, don't um, compare me to the Almighty. Compare me to the alternative. And you know, we we've seen. You know, this is Donald Trump. This is a man who has now been convicted of rape. Among many other things, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and and honestly, when it comes to um, abortion rights, I think women and those who love them can save America. Honestly, um, there are referenda all over the country. Do you approve? And we've seen already that in places like Ruby Red, uh, Kansas, mm-hmm. when the voters actually had a choice overwhelmingly they said get your hands out of my body it's not the decision of politicians to decide whether or not i should be able to or or forced to have a baby or even um able to get health care the health care i need um if i have a really bad pregnancy that's one of the things we're seeing right now um, and, and and so, honestly, I think that the, the stars are aligned for us to make sense to the American people and to mobilize people to get out to vote. I, 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 that's why, you know, as dark as the world seems right now, as bad as it seems in Washington, we could, if... We, you know, if we were to win House, Senate, and the White House, the trifecta, we could usher in the most progressive era in this, in in decades. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We're on the precipice of what could be a real golden age for our country. Jan Schakowsky, Congresswoman, 9th District. Jan, have fun in in Washington. Uh, I hope it doesn't make you crazy. Um, and well, we will t- we'll talk soon. I keep fighting. I'll fight with you, Joan. Thank you. All righty. We are going to take a break for news. We'll be back with more after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I would like to welcome Michael Gratz to our show. Um, Michael Gratz is the author of The Power to Destroy, How the Anti-Tax Movement Hijacked America. Michael, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Joan. Um, I know that what you are writing about 
is on about as the title says the anti-tax movement but you're you explain that this movement uh against taxes was part of how the republican party gained power walk us through that uh those links well the uh, movement really began in 1978 uh, with a proposition to limit property taxes in California. That uh, seems simple enough. On, yeah, it's had a, it had a huge impact on, um, on on spending in California, particularly spending for education. Um, it was a movement, actually, uh, where uh, the leader, Howard Jarvis, an interesting character, one of many interesting characters in this book, uh, basically took the position that, quote, we are paying for them and for somebody else. And uh, it had a lot to do with the fact that the California Supreme Court at that time decided that schools had to be financed equally, which meant that if you were in a rich district, you couldn't spend a lot more on your schools than people in poorer districts. The Bakke case, which you probably remember, was before the Supreme Court mm-hmm. uh, involving affirmative action. Yeah, where, um, where it was the, um, the protest was that uh, a white guy who wanted to enter medical school was being discriminated against. Michael, you have now forced me to reveal my age, but that's OK. I forgive you. <laughs> Sorry, I appreciate the forgiveness. Um, um, In any event, uh, race was very much on people's mind. Um, The schools in California had become much less, the public schools had become much less white and more uh, Latino and and African-American. And as a result, uh, uh, this property tax limitation passed. Now, there was a lot of inflation in California and the property tax assessors were corrupt. Uh, many of them, three of them, went to jail. So um, there were other reasons for passing the move, passing this uh, limitation. But uh, but this was the entry of, of race into the anti-tax movement, which really found its voice with the Christian evangelical movement the same year when the Internal Revenue Service said that uh, it would no longer grant tax exemptions to private segregated academies that did not have any um, minority students. Uh, And this created a huge backlash uh, against the IRS, uh, making the anti-IRS movement part of this uh, movement. It brought uh, Jerry Falwell into the movement. It was the reason, not abortion, which is usually the way the story is told, uh, that the uh, Christian evangelicals uh, really joined uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, campaign for the presidency. Uh, he promised he was going to uh, give these tax exemptions to them. Uh, the Supreme Court denied that. But you had a, a big movement um, um, at that time to limit taxes. And then Reagan came in, of course, and cut taxes dramatically in 1981. And during his time in office, he tripled the federal debt uh, from what it had been uh, with all the presidents before him uh, from about $900 billion to uh, $2.7 trillion. Um, So uh, this was the origin of the movement, and it became, uh, I say, the the glue that held the Republican uh, 
coalition together. It was something that the business uh, elites and the, and and the Christian evangelicals and the MAGA movement and the uh, Grover Norquist anti-tax movement they could all agree that they wanted lower taxes and. You know, it's a it's a common uh, view among the American people, always has been, that we want lower taxes. But the Republicans really turned it into a major uh, social and political movement. And uh, as a result, it has been successful over the last half century, and it's created a huge uh, debt in the United States and transformed the United States government really into an underfunded and fundamentally unsustainable enterprise. And we're still seeing that today because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Donald Trump also pushed through a massive tax cut. And it always amuses me that whenever a Republican runs up our debt, you never hear a peep out of the Republicans. And yet if a Democrat does anything that's going to increase the debt, You'd think um, that, you know, somebody was killing puppies the way they scream and howl. So this this is still, uh, wouldn't you agree, this this is still the glue that's holding them together? Oh, absolutely. It's been, uh, it's, it's interesting because it has been successful and has not really had a setback. I mean, George W. Bush had a huge tax cut. Uh, in 2001 and 2003, and as you say, Donald Trump had a huge tax cut in 2017, and it is in some ways the most successful uh, social and political movement um, that we've experienced. I mean, unlike the um, civil rights movement or the women's movement, uh, this movement really hasn't had any setbacks. They just continue to enact tax uh, cuts and Nobody seems to know how to stop them. Well, one thing that's always puzzled me, and maybe since you've studied this, you have some insight for me. As I said, whenever a Democratic president does anything or proposes any program that is per, even perceived um, as possibly increasing our debt, the Republicans howl long and loud. And yet... When um, Republicans do something, you know, some of these Republican presidents, you don't seem to get that same level of outrage and hysteria from the Democrats. Is it time for the Democratic Party to, you know, I mean, it was amazing to me when President Biden was being accused in some of like the infrastructure, build back better. Oh, it's going to be too expensive. And why Biden didn't just say, well, you know what? Let's roll back part of that trillion dollar tax cut and then we can pay for it really easily. I I don't understand why the Democrats don't fight harder when these tax cuts come up. And I know, I know, maybe they don't always have the votes. But even if they don't have the votes, they could be getting on the Sunday news shows and, and howling the way we see the other party do. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, as you say, this has been a Republican movement, and it's been a movement uh, in which the Republicans only scream about deficits when Democrats are are in charge. Uh, You don't hear much uh, screaming about it. Um, George W. Bush was the first president who uh, started a war, uh, what he called a war on terror, spent $6 trillion. It was the first war in American history that we didn't pay for. 
Um, he added a prescription drug benefit to uh, Medicare, and it was the first entitlement that was not paid for with additional taxes. And there was not a peep, as you suggest, out of the Republicans. But the Democrats have been complicit in this story as well. They supported, uh, ultimately supported Reagan's tax cuts in, in 1981. Uh, George W. Bush couldn't have enacted his tax cuts without some Republican, some Democratic help. It was only the Trump tax cuts that actually passed with only Republican votes, where the Democrats finally voted against it. You know, they have constituents, the Democrats have constituents that want their taxes cut, and they have uh, people who, who give them campaign contributions and other supporters who, who are also um, would like a tax cut. Everybody wants a tax cut. Nobody <laughs> wants a tax increase. And so in some ways, it's not surprising that they've gone along with this. But in doing so, they've really painted themselves into a box. And as you say, it's it's really time for them to say, look, we're spending uh, nearly a trillion dollars a year on interest on the federal debt. It's $870 million, it's $870 billion in 2024. It's over 3% of um of our uh, economy, which means that every dollar of economic growth is going to pay interest on the federal debt. Uh, and the federal debt is now over 100% of the size of the economy. It's larger than it has been at any time since World War II. And, uh, you know, neither, neither party is, is is really stepping up here. Uh, but as, as you say, the it's been a Republican issue, and the Democrats really can't beat the Republicans with the public on tax cuts. So they, but somehow they've acquiesced in this. And I, in my book, say ultimately they've surrendered to the anti-tax movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to repeat, the title of the book is "The Power uh, to Destroy: How the Anti-Tax Movement Hijacked America." Um, and, you know, I, I'm one of those Americans. I would love a tax cut, but it seems that under Republicans, the people who most benefit from these tax cuts are already the ultra wealthy. And do you think this, um, this fact that it is the ultra wealthy that seem to benefit most from these measures, I think that's gone a, a long way to create the incredible wealth inequality that we have in this country and that it seems to me Biden is trying to restore the middle class and try to ease into some of that. But when you give a tax cut, you know, to the people who are already the 0.01% of the country, um, they seem to be the ones who least need a tax cut. And those tax cuts haven't really caused any kind of economic renaissance. Do you think that these Republican tax cuts have created the inequality we see today? Well, they've certainly abetted the inequality we see today. I think a lot of it has to do with the way the economy has developed into what uh, some economists call winner-take-all markets, uh, where, you know, the people at the top uh, are earning amounts that were just unthinkable for for so many years. But the supply-side view of uh, the Republican Party that that moved away from 
Keynesian economics that says that if you want to stimulate the economy, you just give it to the middle class so they'll spend it, basically concentrated their tax cuts on people who were investors and uh, business uh, owners, and uh, that definitely resulted in uh, labor income being taxed uh, more heavily than capital gain or dividends and income from capital. And and they have uh, skewed the distribution of income and wealth uh, to the top, uh, even though it was already happening without the assistance of the tax law. Um, we actually have a caller um, who would like to join our conversation. Uh, Steve is calling in. Steve, you're on with me and Michael Gratz, whose book, of course, is The Power to Destroy, How the Anti-Tax Movement Hijacked America. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, yeah, so a couple of points. Um, I, if the uh, gentleman could address the, this question, well, we often hear about how blue states are, in fact, subsidizing red states with regard to the, the, the totality of money that is bought in versus that is paid out vis-a-vis uh, -vis the federal government to, to state and local governments. Uh, is that the case? There, there's a lot of... Oh. Yeah. Uh, I think we lost has... Steve, but, but, yeah. but Steve, it is the case. It really? is the case. There's the, the transfers are largely going from the states that have been creating the wealth, which are the states with large urban centers like Illinois and Chicago, uh, to states that have been uh, poorer, uh, which are most of the rural states and some of the southern states like Mississippi and Alabama. So it is absolutely the case that that the federal government is transferring money from the from the um, richer states to the, to the poorer states, no question about that. This um, Republican tendency to cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes, do you see any indication that, uh, I, that this is going to change? I mean, I guess it's a winning strategy for them, right? Well, it has been a winning strategy for them. And, and, and um, you know, the Trump tax cuts on businesses – um, were made permanent in 2017 when that law passed. But most of the tax cuts for individuals expire in 2025. And it will cost another $3.5 trillion over the following decade to extend those uh, cuts. Um, obviously, there are ways you could raise revenue to offset some of those cuts. Joe Biden, as you know, has, has made some proposals to tax high-income people and to tax uh, corporations at higher rates and so forth. Um, but I, if I were, if I were, I say to my students, if I were a betting person, and I am, <laughs> I would bet that these tax cuts are extended and really? without a lot of offsets. I think we're we're just digging a hole. And as uh, Barack Obama uh, once famously said, "When you're in a hole, you really need to stop digging." And I don't see us stopping our digging anytime soon, certainly not not in 2025. And I, I'd be surprised if we stop digging regardless of, of who wins the elections going forward. But obviously, if the Republicans somehow manage to sweep, we, we certainly will not see any efforts to uh, to raise taxes. Well, well, why, especially when you just pointed out the cost of 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 not just letting this expire why would we not just let it expire well the the 
the problem is that everybody thinks that interest on the federal debt and the ability to borrow is free. But as I said, if you look at the federal uh, government's expenditures, we're now spending more on interest payments than we spend on Medicare or than we spend on defense or than we spend on a federal share of Medicaid. The only expenditure in the federal government that's greater than interest on the federal debt is now Social Security. And 35 cents of every dollar that we pay a third of what we what we spend on interest is going to foreigners, and not all of them are our friends. But you know you don't notice this. You know April fifteenth comes along and you notice your taxes, or you get a property tax bill from your local government, and you have to pay it twice a year, and, you, and you're mad about it. But the interest on the federal debt is really a hidden tax that we are paying, and we're and we're sending a lot of money abroad every year. Uh, that uh, is doing us uh, little or no good, uh, just interest on, on the debt that has run up. And as I say, it's nearly a trillion dollars, and we're you know, about to shut the government down over a few hundred million dollars or so in the cost of some government agency or another. Um, so, Michael, um, apparently Steve has found a different telephone line and wants to finish <laughs> his comments. Uh, Steve, go sure. ahead. Michael and I are still here. Uh, yes, I'm not sure if you caught part of it. So, uh, one, uh, is it the case that uh, blue states do subsidize red states in this regard, and, and thereby it explains part of the reason why you see this kind of cut, cut, cut taxes uh, by people who are from a lot of red states, uh, especially in positions of, of political leadership? And then secondly, uh, the, the New York Times a couple of years ago did an analysis, and it turns out that irrespective of whether you're in a blue or red state, blue or red county or city, uh, the same dynamics seem to apply, and Jones already alluded to this, you know, I mean, no one likes taxes, and it seems that you know that when it comes to actually paying for things like uh, low-cost housing or more equitable educational systems, uh, even in democratic-run uh, areas of the country, we're not particularly interested in this. It's this, this view that well, you know, everybody's sort of protecting themselves, and I care more about my kids and my neighbors' kids than I do about the kids 50 miles away on the other side of the county. And uh, is that the case as well? Well, I think I mean, you're certainly right. I, I, I answered this when you when you must have been looking for a new telephone. <laughs> but the, um, <laughs> the blue states do sub the, the blue states do subsidize the red states. There's no question that the states that have the, the the growth in income and and most of the income, which is coming mostly from urban centers these days, uh, are subsidizing the poor the poorer and more rural uh, states. Uh, more more money uh, goes into the government from the blue states and, and goes to the red states. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, you know, I, I mean, one of the things that's that's been true of this anti-tax movement is that it's it's rested on two myths, which which both of which have been proven false, and neither one of which has gone away. The first is that. Um, that tax cuts will pay for themselves. I mean, Rush Limbaugh famously said cutting taxes is the only way to raise government revenues. Uh, it's a claim that's grounded in a curve by an economist named Arthur Laffer, and it's completely been shown to be false. They've never paid for themselves. Um, and that's the first uh, myth that this movement rests on. And then the second is 
that, and this really goes to your question, that lowering taxes will necessarily starve the beast and government spending will will decrease. Well, that was true in the states like California, uh, which had uh, Proposition 13, which I mentioned their spending was cut and fire services and parks and schools uh, were, were starved for money. Uh, and it was true in Kansas when uh, Sam Brownback cut taxes in, in Kansas because the states are required to balance their budgets. But at the federal government, uh, there has been no uh, uh, reduction in Social Security or Medicare or or defense, any of the things that uh, the government spends most of its money on. And in fact, as I've said a few times, we've increased our spending on interest on the federal debt by enormous amounts. And so the the movement itself is built on two false and compl- conflicting principles. Um, but somehow a half century of evidence has got no effect on the politics of this story. Well, I mean, since when has politics been based on uh, you know, behaving <laughs> rationally on data acquired. Um, I mean, there's, isn't it, especially our politics today, it seems to be all um, lizard brain. You know, what do I feel? I really feel that person's honest. I really feel that person's uh, good. I mean, data? I mean, come on, Michael, data? <laughs> I know, I'm an old-fashioned guy. That's my problem. But, yes, I, 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 meant, to, I meant to suggest that, uh, you know, the movement is built on myths, and, and I guess your point is that myths seem to be running rampant in American politics these days, and there's certainly a lot of truth to that, Joan. Yeah, um, sadly. Um, sadly, yes. Um, so y- one thing that you said, you said that you think that these tax cuts that uh, were put in place under Trump, the ones that expire in 2025, that you think that they will be allowed or they will be renewed because that is the, you know, popular political thing to do. Um, Is there a possibility, though? I mean, if let's say Joe Biden wins and he has a Democratic Senate and a Democratic Congress and he really has the power to get things done, wouldn't wouldn't it make a lot of people happy um, to see the ultra wealthy lose a big tax cut, as long as the messaging made it clear that that's what was happening. Well, you would think so. Although it was interesting <laughs> because in 2022, uh, Joe Biden had a Democratic Congress and he proposed um, a whole series of, of tax cuts that would make uh, the super wealthy pay more taxes. And uh, as you no doubt know, ProPublica did an expose of the taxes that were not being paid by some of the richest people in America, uh, Warren Buffett and, and, and Bezos and, and Musk and, and other uh, names that we all know. And yet, despite all the publicity that the tax gambits that the wealthy were using to avoid taxes, um, all the press that they got, all the attention they got, um, the Democratic Congress refused to enact any of Joe Biden's uh, tax cuts, tax increases on the on the very rich. Now, of course, uh, the answer that that a lot of people give to that was, well, you know, you had Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema 
in the Senate, and they were able to block it. And, and there is some truth to that. Uh, but there are a lot of gambits, for example, that tax lawyers have devised under the estate tax that allow the very wealthy to avoid taxes on their wealth when they give it to their children or grandchildren or put it in trust forever yeah. so that the future generations will, will enjoy the wealth. Uh, it was in the House bill that came uh, out of a committee, uh, but somehow it just disappeared on the floor of the House, uh, which was, as you know, uh, dominated by the Democrats. And so I think that one of the problems, and we haven't discussed this, is that money in American politics today and the role of money has just become so overwhelming for both yeah. parties that it becomes very hard uh, to do things that the average American uh, would support, like yeah. uh, increasing those taxes or closing those loopholes. And maybe we can get you to come back and we can have a big discussion about that next time. What do you say, Michael? <laughs> Sounds good. I've enjoyed right. it. Michael Gatz, uh, the book is The Power to Destroy, How the Anti-Tax Movement Hijacked America. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with more after this. You know what time it is? Hello. Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, now on WCPT 820. Carolyn Shapiro is here. She has been on our show several times. She is the co-director of the Chicago Kent College of Law's Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. And if this Supreme Court continues some of the nonsense that they've been doing, she's going to have her own show here on WCPT. I'm pretty sure I'll just give her a half an hour every day to talk about what's happening and see if she can make it understandable to us. Carolyn, thank you for coming back. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for okay. having me. Let's start with all of my questions. Um, okay. Now, I want to talk about uh, Trump and immunity and see if I have a grasp of this. Donald mm -hmm. Trump's argument is that out of the goodness of his heart, he is going to get this cleared up once and for all that uh, presidents... I'm a little clear if it's just when they're in office, but I think it's pretty much forever um, have immunity from prosecution for anything, because if he can't get this established in the future, no president will ever take any action for fear that they will be charged um, in a in a court of law somewhere. And he appealed to the um uh, the District of Columbia Appellate Court, a three-judge panel, uh, gave him an answer. They were like, no, no, a thousand times no. And they said, you know, if you want to appeal it to the full uh, appellate court, you can do that. But we're going to say that your trial can start up again and keep going forward. And he, And then he was like, no, 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 no. No, that's wrong. That should never be. Uh, my trial should be um, not restarted. And the Supreme Court needs to tell you that. So I'm going to go to the Supreme Court not to rule on immunity, but to rule on the fact that the people at the appellate court who are being mean to me have to be nice to me. Do I have any of that right? Well, I would say you're not far off. 
Okay. Um, he is, Bring me he, back he onto is, the correct line. No, you're pretty much you've, you've got the the basic the basics. I mean, he he is making the argument that uh, anything he did, that he is immune from prosecution forever for anything that he did while he was president, at least as long as he was not impeached and convicted for having done that. Now, of course, he was impeached but not convicted for some of these some of these. Uh, Things that he's now been indicted for. Um, the this is a, truly a breathtaking argument. It is <laughs> so counter to the principles of our system of government that it's hard to even express how wrong it is. I, uh, but and you are correct. The D.C. Circuit, a panel uh, not particularly ideologically. Uh, aligned judges unanimously and collectively said, no, no, a thousand times no, and your your case is, you know, your trial's going to start. And then he went to the Supreme Court and he filed a, what's called an emergency application asking the Supreme Court to stay uh, that order. Now, the I, I think that the Supreme Court has several choices here, and I'll tell you what it could do, and then I'll tell you what I think is most likely happening, but I don't know for sure. Uh, the, the Supreme Court could simply deny that application. The Supreme Court, and then the trial would go forward. Uh, and then later, if you wanted to try to make the appeal again to the Supreme Court after the trial is over, if he's convicted, he could do that. Um, the Supreme Court could take the uh, take the case, take the application and treat it as what's called a petition for certiorari before judgment, which means they're going to say, well, we're just going to decide it. And they could decide the question more definitively about whether this immunity exists. Um, or they could grant the stay and then say, all right, well, we'll take our time and we'll have full briefing and argument and you know, by then it'll be too late to have the trial before the election. I think that the Supreme Court is would have already done, said it was taking the case to decide it on the merits if it was going to do that. Um, I, so my best guess of what's happening is that they are going to deny his application and that possibly they're going to say, even reach the merits and say, you know, no, no, this is just wrong. Um, but that somebody is writing a dissent, um, and that we will get a, a, some kind of angry dissent from my guess would be Alito and or Thomas. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me, and I, I've said this on the air, that this whole issue is a lose lose for the Supreme Court. Um, I mean, if they if they continue to support Trump's motions. It will, in the minds of the public, simply reinforce this idea that they are just partisan hacks. And if they oppose what Trump wants, um, then they're going to anger uh, the Republicans who take them on those nice vacations. So why not just uh, why not just dodge it and just say, you know what, we're not this is one we're not going to hear. They could do that. They could say and, and by doing that, they would essentially be saying you know, just deny the application. Um, the, the the thing is, they they can deny the application without issuing an opinion. 
the the question then is, though, would somebody write a dissent, which they have the right to do. Now, this court could issue the order denying the application and say there may be dissents, published dissents later. They have not been in the habit of doing that of late, but, you know, they they used to do that when there was a a, a time-sensitive issue. I think they should do that, frankly, in this case, because this is pretty darn time-sensitive. But at least as of now, I think they're – that's my guess, is that they're, they want to do what you said, just kind of duck it, um, which, is, which would mean that the trial would proceed and presumably would proceed before the election. And that, that would be a pretty important thing to have happen before the election. Uh-huh. It, it also – you know, I think um, your, your listeners undoubtedly know that the Supreme Court heard argument in the case about whether – Trump can be taken off the ballot mm-hmm. due to the insurrection. And it sure seems like the court is not going to take him off the ballot. It seemed overwhelmingly that they're going to go the other way. Um, and this would, you know, there is a sort of a, a political bargain to be made here. If they leave him on the ballot, but they actually let the trial proceed, so we actually mm-hmm. can, you know, all the voters have full information that 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 would be a you know an, a, an understandable outcome and rightly or wrongly and it would um, you know it would sort of balance a little bit between the different people who are you know the different political factions that you're talking about. Well, I agree with you, uh, and I think that would. I think that would give them cover. <laughs> okay, we did this good, one good thing, but we're not going to do this other thing. Um, now, the I believe the these things that are time sensitive, the disqualification case and the immunity case, will I don't quite understand if they are sometimes obligated to give decisions in a timely manner. Cause I know a lot of times when they hear cases and I always ask people, well, when will there be a decision? And I'm usually told, well, sometime before they recess for the summer, uh, you'll get their decision basically whenever they feel like it. But these are very time sensitive things. They must know that surely we'll get a decision right away. Right. Both cases. I am a little surprised, frankly, that we don't have one yet in the immunity application. Um, I'm not so surprised about the other about the disqualification case that that was argued um, three weeks ago, and and there's a lot to not even three weeks ago, and and the opinion opinions in that case are going to be you know take some craftsmanship. Um, but I think they are undoubtedly prioritizing that case in terms of what they decide, you know, where they put their time and energy to get it out the door. I've always been curious, and maybe you can give me some insight into this. I mean, we know when they hear arguments, it's a big deal, and there will be reporters, and, you know, everybody's paying attention. What kind of questions did they ask? Were they seem to be supportive or antagonistic? So we know about that. Um, do they schedule time um, where they just, like, I don't know, meet for coffee um, to talk about these things? I've also heard that clerks do a lot more 
than than you know that all the research and 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 that kind of stuff is a lot of that is more than you might think is done by the clerks who come to them with you know precedent and and arguments so do they rely do the clerks talk to each other do the clerks meet for coffee um how is the give and take? What goes on behind the scenes? That's what I want to know, Carolyn. Well, I can tell you a little bit about that. So the justices meet officially, uh, usually in weeks when they have argument, they might, they might meet twice, actually. And, and then they usually meet during the course of the term, maybe every other week if they're not having argument. Um, and that they, this this official meeting is called conference, and they're in a they go to conference. It's just the nine of them. Nobody else is allowed in the door, um, and that's where they talk about what cases they are going to decide, what cases they're going to take, uh, what cases to grant cert on. They talk about granting what, cert means but, that they're going to hear the case. Yes, yes, okay. they, they're going to hear argument, uh, and they. Uh, they talk about how they're going to decide the cases that have just been argued that week. It's a it's a preliminary vote. People say what they think they're going to do, uh, but and it, it can, sometimes it does happen that people change their minds. But that's that's the official time and place when they have those conversations. They used to, and as far as I know, still do. Although I'm not sure, uh, they used to eat together uh, most days after argument and after conference. They would have lunch together, uh, and different justices have really different styles. Some of them are, are friends. Some of them are in and out of each other's chambers. I mean, I, I, I actually know much less about the current makeup of the court because um, Justice Thomas is the only justice who was there when I clerked. But there, I can't, you know, people are people, so I imagine there's still some of that going on. Like there, there are people going in and out of each other's offices or talking to each other on the phone depending on not just a question of, of ideological alignment, but also you know, who get, gets along with who. But there's a fair mm-hmm. amount of opportunity for them to talk to each other, even outside of conference and the, the, the meals that they have together. Whether they take advantage of that, I don't You know, how much they take advantage of that, I don't know. Um, now, the clerks, yeah, the clerks do a lot of work. They do uh, a, a lot of research. They draft Opinions for the justices, of course, they have to start with the benefit of extraordinarily talented lawyers having written, usually having written excellent briefs. So there's a, there's a lot to work with. Um, and the clerks talk to each other all the time, uh, I think. they or We used to when I was there, and I imagine that's still the case, um, that, that there's a lot of conversation between the, between the clerks. So... What I guess what I'm what I'm wondering is, um, do they ever, rather than I, um, in addition to meeting around the table and having these discussions that no one's privy to, like if John Roberts really really thinks something, like it seems, just as an outside observer who knows next to nothing about how the court functions. It sometimes seems to me that John Roberts maybe uh, got somebody's ear and said, you know, I know I really think that this is the way you ought to go on this or you ought to join me or whatever. Um, 
do they ever like would John, would John Roberts like call Amy Coney Barrett at home and say, look, Amy, we got to talk because, you know, that Gorsuch guy <laughs> is driving me bananas. Um, I guess well, if there are people, I suppose some of those conversations take place. But it just seems to me that, um, you know, I mean, when when you know that John Roberts, God help us, seems to be at this point almost a swing vote. Um and I would have to believe that he would have more swaying power over a Kavanaugh or a Barrett than, say, Sotomayor would have. So do you think there are also like little private conversations about, you know, and I'm sure John Roberts must worry, you know, guys, if we do this, you know, the the flack we're going to get, supposedly they're above it, but we know they're not. The flack we're going to get, this is further going to undermine what people say about us and you know i don't know it just seems that that there has to be that kind of one-on-one arm twisting as part of this as well do you think so or is that again maybe something more done clerk to clerk uh i i think that it's undoubtedly the case that there are individual conversations between individual justices and i think that john roberts is extremely concerned about the court's position in the country. And I think the way he would put it is that he's concerned about institutional legitimacy and uh, that he undoubtedly has used that concern and, and shared his concern with the other justices who are likely to be receptive to that, who are, as you suggested, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, maybe to a limited extent, but he and Alito and Thomas generally take the position that, you know, consequences be damned, they're going to, um, you know, that they're just going to, you know, I mean, if they mean dialing back 200 years worth of precedent, that's what it is. Um, the other the other justices who I mentioned who are very, very conservative, uh, Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, do actually care about the court's institutional legitimacy. So I, I suspect that there are conversations about that among them. I hope so. One of the Supreme Court cases that I haven't done a huge amount of discussion about on this on this radio show is the Chevron case. But it has really important implications. Can you explain it to us? Yeah, so Chevron was a case uh, from the 80s in which the Supreme Court said, look, when a statute that the government, that the Congress passes is ambiguous, but it gives a government agency the power to implement or, or regulate under the statute, and they determine what they think that means, what they think the ambiguity means, we, the court, should defer to the agency because they're experts and they they have reasons why they they do what they do. Now there's a lot of limiting principles around that, but that's the basic idea that where there's a ambiguous statute, the agency that has that Congress has delegated the power to apply or enforce the statute to can interpret it, and that that interpretation is subject to to deference by the courts, so that they won't overturn that that interpretation unless it's unreasonable. This has been the law for a very, very long time. And the court has been asked this term in two separate cases that were that were argued um, recently to overrule Chevron. And this sounds super technical, 
Um, but it, it is actually incredibly important. And let me give you a couple of examples of why. One is that agencies can actually change their minds. So if you have a, a, a different administration, a different president who wants to interpret, who wants to have a more or less pro-environmental policy, the agencies that report to the president can adjust accordingly. They're, they're, again, there are limiting principles, but they can adjust accordingly as long as they're operating within these, this reasonableness frame. Once a court says, this is what the statute means, which is the alternative, that's what it means. Uh, nobody can, the only way to change it is for Congress to pass a new law. So it kind of, it, it shifts a, a tremendous amount of power to overrule Chevron, which shifts a tremendous amount of power from the expert agencies and Congress to the court. Mm-hmm. And, um, and right now we have a court that is notably hostile to a lot of different types of regulation. Uh, and I would not be very thing uh, one about the nature of the interpretations that they would give to these statutes. Not to, me- not to mention there's 40 years of precedent, 40, 40 years of precedent uh, invo- where over and over again the court has used this Chevron deference to, uh, to uphold things that agencies have done. And nobody knows what would happen to that, all of that law, if they were to overrule Chevron. But this court doesn't seem to care anything about precedent. I mean, wasn't that in their confirmation hearings? That's what we kept hearing from Kavanaugh and Barrett. Precedent, precedent. Oh, well, you know, I respect president, precedent. It's, um, you know, I, I see no reason that um, we would uh, do something different than what's already there. And yet that's exactly what they've done. So we should be- believe that that's important to them. Well, I'm not saying it's going to stop them. Um, I do think it might give some of them pause. I think, you know, what they did in, in Dobbs with abortion and what they did with affirmative action in SFFA, and, and there have been other examples where they've overruled some pretty longstanding precedent. Uh, certainly they, they weren't deterred by the existence of, of longstanding precedent. I do think, though, that, that those two items, affirmative action and abortion, uh, were at the very, very top of the, uh, the checklist of things that a conservative justice would want to accomplish. And that there might be, um, especially given the reaction uh, from the public, that they might say maybe we should move more cautiously when we're talking about overruling precedent going forward. I, you know, I, I, I'm not telling you what's, what I, what's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's tons of reason to be concerned uh, about about them, oh, that they might, in fact, just up and out and out overrule Chevron. But I think there are, I wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion at this point. Okay, I'm going to ask you an easy one. Will we ever see Clarence Thomas recuse from any case about anything at any time? Well, interestingly enough... He did recuse from a, a, a cert, I think it was a cert petition filed by John Eastman, who uh, was, as you know, one of the, the architects of the legal strategy that, that led to January 6th. And John Eastman uh, has got all kinds of legal problems right now, and he filed something with the Supreme Court. I, I actually can't remember precisely what it was, and they denied it. 
Uh, but in the order issuing, noting the denial, Justice Thomas had recused himself. He didn't say why, which they are actually, they said they were going to do. But John Eastman uh, was his law clerk. And John Eastman was involved in January 6th. So it did raise the question, given that uh, Justice Thomas's wife was also involved in January 6th and was very eager to, to see the results of the election overturned. Uh, although not, it's not, I don't think there's any evidence that she participated in storming the Capitol, um, that, that there are good reasons to think that maybe he should have recused himself, he should recuse himself from this immunity case, for example, and or from the disqualification case. But he didn't recuse himself from the disqualification case, uh, and he, you know, we don't know yet about the immunity case. I, I, I think it's... Um, really somewhat inexplicable why he recused from the John Eastman case without saying why and now is not recusing from these other cases. It's extremely, um, it, it certainly doesn't give a lot of, it doesn't help the, the institutional legitimacy concerns. Carolyn Shapiro, thank you for joining us. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, she is, of course, a professor and a co-director of the Supreme Court Institute at uh, Chicago Kent College of Law. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, that is going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. She has a really interesting slate of guests tonight. So stay tuned. You're going to really enjoy it. Uh, Richard Chu will be here tomorrow at 6 a.m. I will not be here. I think Tory Ryder's filling in. My son's having surgery. But I will see you again Thursday at 2 p.m. Stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening and good night.